Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, the life of Samson comes into the spotlight. Pretty well-known character, but... uh... I'm sure you'll give us some insights, Mike, into aspects of his life that perhaps we hadn't spotted. He's, his story is in the book of Judges. Why, why is Samson in the book of Judges? Yeah, it seems an odd place to to find him. I think the first thing we need to say is the book of Judges is not about judges as we tend to think of that word these days, someone who sits in a court. Um, the term is used in this period of Israel's history for someone that God anointed by his spirit to sovereignly raise them up to rescue Israel from their enemies. And, and so in the whole book, we, we get 12 judges, six major, six minor. Major and minor simply means how much time is given to them in the story. And it's a story uh, within this judges period that follows the story of Joshua. Joshua had led the people into the promised land, led them to take the land, but they'd not taken all of it. There were still pockets of resistance left. And the stories that we get in the book of Judges cover a period of about 325 years from start to finish, from about 1375 to 1050 BC, mm-hmm. in days that were pretty dark for Israel. They were following the living God, and yet they were following other gods as well. They were attacked by so many internal and external peoples. And God often used those attacks as a way of waking his people up. But whenever they called out to God, God sent them a deliverer, a judge. And that's where Samson fits in. He's one of those that God calls. Now, anybody who knows the story of Samson knows that he was a pretty rum character, really. (laughs) Not a lot that was godly about him. But what that shows is how bad these days were. Samson was one of the best that God could find to deliver his people. In a bad, bad world. So it doesn't tell us much about what else was going on, does it? Let's go back to the beginning then. Uh, His upbringing, what do we know about his childhood? Well, what we know is that in Judges chapter 13, we discover that his parents were childless. It's interesting that so often in the Bible, significant figures come from childless parents. It's as if they had to be born out of a real intervention of God. And so these parents, they had been childless for a long time, and the mum was calling out to God in particular. And we find an angel appearing to her and saying, yes, you are childless, you are barren at the moment, but you're going to conceive and have a son. That must have been an incredible promise to her. But also, let's face it, probably hard to believe with each passing month discovering how very barren that you were. But this angel had made a promise that she was going to have a son and it put certain like restrictions on what he was to do in life. You're to make sure that he doesn't drink wine or other strong drink. Uh, He's not got to touch anything unclean. Oh, and by the way, no razor is to touch his head. All those were characteristics of what we call a Nazarite vow. 
And a Nazarite vow would be something in Israel that would be temporary. You would vow that for a period of time, you would avoid any alcohol, you would not touch anything unclean, you would not cut your hair for this period as a as a means of showing your devotion to God, maybe as a means of giving yourself to him to pray. But here's the difference with Samson. He's told that he's going to be a Nazarite all his life. While he's still yet to appear in his mother's womb, God has already got a plan for him. An idea that comes often in scripture that God has plans for us long before we know our own. So that's how the story begins. A barren couple, an angel appears to the wife and promises that God is going to give them a son who will have a Nazarite vow imposed upon him from birth. So the parents make those promises. It's only later in life that he has to take that on board for himself. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems, to be honest, that he's pretty resentful about this. Because as we read through the story of Samson, we discover that he breaks every single one of those vows. He definitely will drink wine and alcohol. He definitely does touch things unclean. There's that story of him ripping a lion apart and going back later and finding honey inside its carcass and and taking out the honey to feed from it. And yet a carcass was unclean. He will have his hair cut later in life. And so I think reading between the lines, what we see here is a certain resentment that these things have been imposed upon him. Uh, And he seems to react to that, really doesn't like it at all. That story about the the lion and the carcass and the honey, I'm sure I've seen a, a picture on a tin of golden syrup. That's where it came from. Tate and Lyle's golden syrup. Older listeners will perhaps remember that. I still don't know if it still has the same symbol, but you're exactly right. And it was that story from uh, Judges 14 where Samson rips open the lion and, and takes the honey out of it. Even there, you know, that, that was such a bad setting for a story, really. One of the things that Samson couldn't do was he couldn't rule his appetites couldn't rule his physical appetites, couldn't rule his sexual appetites. And the Bible shows us constantly the trouble we get into when we fail on both those counts. And in chapter 14, we find him coming to his parents and saying, I've seen a Philistine woman, go and get her for me. And he meant go and get her as a wife. Now, the alarm bell should be flashing straight away. A Philistine woman. Hmm. So in other words, this is outside of the people of God. God's word was very clear to his people that his people should marry within the family of faith, something that's repeated in the New Testament. But here he is wanting to marry a Philistine, someone outside the faith. And hang on, these were the very people who were attacking Israel in this period. The Philistines lived in five city-states along the coast. And at this period, as they were growing in numbers, they They were trying to press in land to get more territory. It will become even more of a problem in the time of Israel's first king, King Saul, that will shortly follow this. So here he is wanting someone who's not part of the people of God, someone who's actually an enemy. And he insists on 
marrying this woman. And it's while he's going down to Timna, where she lives, to get this woman, that this lion attacks him. And the Spirit of God comes upon him, rips this lion apart. My goodness, what an insight into the power mm. that this guy knew. Rip them apart, leaves the carcass. And then a few days later, when he comes by again, finds that bees have taken up residence, made their home there, produced a honeycomb, and he'll use it as a riddle to, towards his wife and the Philistines when he goes there. So that's where your Tate and Lyle honey lion comes from. <laughs> it sounds, though, as if his, he's got an attitude problem with his parents, his, his doting parents, possibly. Yeah, isn't that a good word, David, doting parents? And again, I think we can understand why. They had longed to have a child. And now after years and years of waiting, here's this child. And in the culture of the time, not just a child, but a son. In other words, someone to carry on the name and the family that was so important at that culture. Yeah, and I think we can imagine that perhaps they, they were a little bit soft with him little bit pampering of him, that he always got whatever he wanted. And clearly, he grew up expecting to get whatever he wants. So yes, in that story, he sees this Philistine woman, takes a shine to her and says to his parents, says to his father, go and get me that woman, as though they were his servants, you know, at his beck and call. So I think you're absolutely right. He'd, he'd grown up very accustomed to getting whatever he wanted, Maybe we could just say in passing parents to their kids, no good these days. If you are constantly giving them everything they want, if you don't teach them the meaning of the word wait, and more important, you don't teach them the meaning of the word no. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about how if we don't discipline our kids well and in a loving way, but clearly it will always rebound on us. And it did here in these stories. Samson's known for his strength. That's what we associate with Samson. And it seems to imply that it was his long hair that had something to do with his strength. Is that the case? Well, clearly the three parts of his Nazarite vow were a key to who he was supposed to be in God. So not just the long hair, but the abstinence from wine and other alcohol, the avoidance of everything unclean, not getting defiled, ritually unclean, and the not cutting their hair. So I don't think it was the hair as such, or the wine as such, or, or whatever it was, the uncleanness. It, it was what those things represented. What this man was meant to be was a man who was dedicated to God's service. He was supposed to be a man who would lead God's people at this crucial, crucial dark time. And the strength was not in those three things as such. It was in what they represented. And it's interesting, it's like he despises all of them. So in that story about the lion we were just talking about, he, he despises the fact he's supposed to avoid uncleanness. He clearly was a man who liked a glass of wine or two. In the story eventually where his hair is cut, it leads, yes, to the losing of his power and strength, but it, it, it wasn't like magic hair. It was what it symbolised. And that was the point at which it's like he'd thrown away everything that God had given to him. You know, how easy it is still for us to disregard, despise 
gifts and callings that God had given to us because we see something in the moment. And for each of these stories in Samson, it, it always revolves around women. You know, he, he had a problem with pretty women. He he liked a pretty woman and he couldn't rule his appetites. He couldn't say no. And so he chose the thing of the moment. In that story in chapter 14, although he married that Philistine, he ends up not getting her as a wife. She ends up being given to someone else and he takes his revenge on the Philistines uh, because of that in chapter 15. But in chapter 16, we find him finding a, another lady. This is Delilah. This is Delilah. And Delilah is not just not part of God's people. The text clearly says she was a prostitute. And this is a girl that he seems to fall for. Again, outside of God's family, down in Gaza, down in one of the Philistine cities. So he, he just couldn't say no to himself. Whatever he wanted, he had to have, even if that meant going against the call of God that was on his life. A call, remember, that wasn't just about him. The call to be a judge and the anointing to be a judge was for the benefit of the whole of God's people. He was supposed to be a deliverer for all of God's people. But now he liked jumping into bed with women. That was his big thing and his big weakness. Now, we might have heard the Tom Jones song about Delilah, but, <laughs> but what does the Bible tell us about Delilah? <laughs> I don't know whether she sang like Tom Jones or not, um, but she was clearly a lady who played the game both ways, as it were. And because she's a Philistine, the Philistines are determined to be able to use her to overcome this incredible guy who is such a force against them and so she entices him to her home he wants to go there and we get several examples where Delilah says to Samson oh come on honey tell me the secret of your strength and you know there they are probably in bed together sorry to be so graphic but that's how the setting of the story is perhaps rolling his hair and saying, come on, sweetie, tell me the story. Tell me the secret. And each time he tells her, but of course he tells her untruth. Mm. And so when the Philistines try to overtake him on the basis of that, it just doesn't work. And eventually she keeps on nagging away at him, is the word the Bible uses. She keeps on nagging away at him until he was tired to death, it says. And then eventually he gives in. It's, it's like anything for a quiet life. Perhaps a little lesson there that, you know, when we give in to nagging, we are in risk of making a wrong decision. And that's certainly what he did. Because eventually he gives in to her nagging and her questioning of what's the secret of your strength? And what he says to her is the secret of my strength is that no razor has ever been put to my head. Interesting, that's the first thing he says. Because I've been a Nazarite, set apart to God. My goodness, Samson, could you hear the words that you're saying there? Set apart to God. You know this. You know you've been called to be set apart to God for some special purpose, and yet it means nothing to you. Mm. What you want at the moment is being in bed with this woman who's captured your heart, 
So no razor has ever touched my head because I'm a Nazarite set apart. And he says, if you shave my head, my strength will go. Now, I find that interesting because at that point, it, it almost looks like Samson himself thinks the hair's a bit magical. Mm. And he's forgotten that middle bit, set apart to God. That's the crucial part. That's the crucial part. But he thinks it's all about the hair. So the minute Delilah hears about this, she sends off to the rulers of the Philistines, says, I've got it at last. He's really told me what's what. We'll get him to sleep. And while he's asleep, you guys can creep up and you can cut his hair. And that's exactly what happens in Judges chapter 16. So it says she put him to sleep on her lap, you know, probably stroking his head. And there he drifts off into slumber. And while he's asleep, I've often wondered how on earth they did this. He said while she was, he was asleep, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think if someone tried to cut my hair in the middle of the night, I'd, I'd probably notice. But we know he's a man who liked to drink. Maybe he'd had quite a bit of the wine that night. Mm. She's soothing him and she has his hair cut off. Suddenly says, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he wakes from his sleep. And he says, I'll go out and I'll deal with these Philistines. But here's the scary phrase. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Hmm. I mean, it has sad to be in a place where you just don't notice that God's not around anymore. And again, he thought God was like, you know, a magic genie in a bottle, someone to be called upon in time and need when it was there. But the rest of the time, I can get on living my own life as I like. He despised his calling, and so suddenly now God has left him, not because the hair has gone, but because the heart has gone. His heart had gone long, long ago, and the hair is just really like the, the final expression of it. So even though he'd verbalised not long before that he was set apart for God, in his heart, it didn't mean anything. Yeah, do you know, it's really easy to come out with words, isn't it? But, you know, out of the heart, the mouth really speaks. And yes, he'd said, I'm a Nazarite. It's a bit like, do you remember Jonah? Mm. When he's thrown into the sea and uh, just before he's thrown into the sea, the sailors are trying to say, you know, why has this come upon us? And the lot falls on him and he proudly stands there and says, I am an Israelite, a servant of the living God. And you think, you idiot, how can you be saying that? <laughs> And yet you're running away from this God and the cause of this storm. Yeah. Here's another example. I am a Nazarite, but it meant nothing to him. The words meant nothing to him. A bit like today saying, I am a Christian, means nothing. It's, it's, it's what's in our heart. Has there been that change of heart? Not are we perfect, but are we soft and tender to God? Do we have a heart that's open to God and wanting to be used by him? He has the words. But no reality. He's got the external religion, but no relationship at all. So as a result, what then happened? What, what was his reaction? Well, what happens is an amazing story of the grace of God. Because what happens immediately is that the Philistines come and seize him. Remember, this is a guy who's been fighting against them, who's slaughtered many, who's who's tied brushwood to foxes' tails and had them run through their cornfields. This guy has been nothing but trouble. But what they do is they, they, they put him in chains. They take him off to chain, jail. 
uh, and they get him grinding in the prison. Now, what that meant was they ground grain in those days with big, heavy stones that needed walking around. So you had a flat stone and then a vertical stone attached to a long pole, and you walked around in circles, pushing that around to grind the grain. Here is the man who had been God's judge, the man God had used, now who's reduced to, frankly, the level of a slave, chained, grinding the grain inside of the jail. But then there's a really exciting turning point. In chapter 16, we read that while he's doing this, but, there's that but word again that we find so often in the Bible, but the hair on his head began to grow again. Now remember, the hair wasn't magic, but it's as if God is doing something here and saying, Samson, you have messed up, but I am going to show you that even when people fail their part of the bargain, I keep mine. I anointed you even before you were born. I called you even before you were in your mother's womb to be a man anointed by me to rescue my people. And Samson, you may not know it. You may not even like it, but I am still going to use you because I am a faithful God. The hair started growing again. A serious reminder of the vow over his life. But how did it all end? Well, it all ends again with an incredible act of the grace of God. The Philistines are having a party one day at the end of chapter 16, and all their leaders are there, and they say, we're going to have a, a great sacrifice to, to Dagon. Dagon was one of the great Philistine gods. He was often represented with a fish tail, almost a bit like a mermaid. Um, so he was the god of the oceans. Remember, they were on the coast, these cities. So Dagon is one of their great gods, and they're having this party. It's a celebration party to celebrate that Dagon has delivered Samson, their enemy, into our hands. So they, the wine is flowing, the food is flowing, they're having a great time. Here's to Dagon, you know, yes, we've conquered Samson. And suddenly when the wine's been flowing quite freely, someone comes out with this idea, let's bring Samson out to entertain us. Let's have a bit of fun. They didn't mean entertainment in terms of song and dance. They just wanted to make fun of him. So they send for Samson from the jail, and there he is brought into the temple of Dagon where they are having this feast. And what they want to see is what a wretch of a man this guy has become. So they can laugh at him and mock him. Yeah, this was the guy who did so much against them. Look at him now. Look how great we are. Look how great our God Dagon is. But Samson does one last thing. He has to do whatever he has to do for them. He says he performed for them, whatever that meant. But then he says to one of the servants, um, put my hands on the pillars of the temple. Now, Samson must have been a, a, a pretty big guy. And he stretches out his hands left and right so that he can lean on the pillars 
of this temple. And he couldn't see the pillars because he'd had his eyes gouged out. Absolutely. So that's why he needed to have this guy guide him. Think how pathetic this is. This once formerly anointed, powerful guy, now weak, almost bald, hair just starting to grow, eyes gouged out, probably not looking the best he ever had having been in jail, has his hands placed on these pillars so he can feel them. And the place is packed. Um, The story tells us there are about 3,000 people packed in this big temple. Now, we know from archaeological discoveries that what's described here is exactly how temples were built. Two central pillars that carried a crossbeam that carried the weight. And he calls out to God and he says, God, please strengthen me just one more time. Just one last time. Give me one more go, God, and let me get revenge on these Philistines. Mm, Shame he put the word revenge in there, wasn't it? But this is a very mixed guy. And so what he does is as he feels these, he's an incredibly strong guy. But now the spirit of God comes on him for one last time. And he pushes and he pushes until the pillars give way and the whole temple roof collapses down on everyone's head. And the story says that he killed more when he died than while he lived. Because, yeah, Samson died in that disaster as well. He killed many enemies, but is it with the cost of his own life? So though we think of him as a strong man, the Bible's strong man, It sounds to me as if actually he was very weak in many respects. Yes, and he was only strong when the Spirit of God came upon him. The whole thing about these judges that we read of in the book of Judges is that they were all actually very weak, feeble men. In a previous episode, we looked at at Gideon, a guy who was so courageous, he hid to get away from the enemies. He didn't want to be the leader that God called him to be. So these were very ordinary people who were made extraordinary by the spirit of God coming on them. So Samson in himself was not a strong guy. Samson was strong when God's spirit came upon him. But clearly he was a very insecure guy as well. You know, clearly he was a guy who slept around. People who sleep around a lot are insecure people. They're frightened of relationship. They're frightened of commitment, just like he was. So we think of him as strong, but only strong when God made him so. But inside, I think, yeah, you're right. I think a pretty weak guy inside. And yet calling out to God, God, remember me one last time. You know, what a grace of God here. What a grace of God that even at the end, you can call out just these last few days. One of my closest friends. His father is even now, as we're talking, uh, on the edge of dying in hospital. His son, my friend, became a Christian 39 years ago, and for 39 years he's prayed for his father. It was in his hospital deathbed that his dad eventually said, I'm ready to receive Jesus. What a joy after all those years. Do you know what? I think if it had been us, we might have turned around and said, you needn't bother now, thank you very much. But God is never like that. He never turns anyone away. He didn't turn my friend's father away. 
and he didn't turn Samson away. He could so easily have said to Samson, Samson, forget it. You've despised everything. You've despised your value. You've despised me. You're on your own, mate. And yet I love this story because God never comes to a place of saying to us, you're on your own, mate, and gives him what he asks, that anointing one last time to destroy the enemies of God's people, sadly at the cost of his own life too. What do you think you can draw from his battle with self-control? I think one of the things we can learn from his life is that, you know, if we don't control things, they will control us. Samson had no self-control with drink and with women, and both of them ended up controlling him. So one of the things I think that comes out to us that's still relevant for today is when the New Testament urges us to be a people who are fully self-controlled with the help of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean we won't stumble or sin occasionally. Of course we will. But to be a people who set our hearts on living self-controlled lives, living lives as God wants to do us to do, that's when we see God's blessing. That's when we see God's anointing. Samson was a man who had no self-control and who eventually paid the ultimate price for it. How much better if we learn self-control with the help of the Holy Spirit to not despise what God has called us to be like Samson did, but with his help to come into everything that he's got for us. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.